Hello, and welcome back to another edition of YCT Matters. This is Carol Platt-Lebow, the president of Yankee Institute. And sometimes I know I'm given to saying, do we have a treat for you today? But actually, we do have a treat for you today because we are joined by one of our own and one of Connecticut's finest, Frank Ritchie. Frank, as you know, is Yankee Institute's labor fellow, but he wears many hats. And Frank travels around the state, and he does our Labor Management Strategies program. And we're going to talk about that a little bit in the program. Um, But we are mostly going to talk about Frank's new book. And you will be able to find a link from it on the Yankee Institute site. But it is called Command Presence, Increase Your Influence. And Frank has authored this book, building on his experience as a firefighter and a fire chief, where he has led, and also on his experience leading a firefighters union. He was the chief of the New Haven Firefighters Union for some years. And also, based on his experience as lead plaintiff in a successful Supreme Court case, Richie V. Stefano, and he has many valuable insights about command presence, about leadership, about poise in the media spotlight, which can be a white-hot glare. And we are delighted to have Frank with us to talk about his book and to share some of the insights that he has put together very cogently in what turned out to be a fascinating read in which I read a lot. So, I mean, I learned a lot. So I read a lot and I learned a lot. So thank you for being with us, Frank, and welcome. Well, thank you. It's an honor to be here, Carol. In your book, um, Command Presence, Increase Your Influence, you talk about a lot of things. You talk about leadership. You talk about media presence. So let's break it down. Um, you, You first, you talk really about how to become a leader and some of the steps it takes. How did you come to decide to write the book, Frank? Basically, I came to write the book based off all my failures because everybody learns from their own mistakes, but only the wise learn from others. So writing the book was actually a very humbling experience because at the end, I was like, did I do anything right? Um, (laughs) But I just started putting pen to paper and I wanted others to take something away from my experience because if you're a leader, eventually you're going to find yourself in front of a camera, in front of a courtroom, or in front of a room with people that don't agree with you. And I wanted to kind of put forth some of the tactics because, Carol, when we see a lot of leadership books out there, they talk very wide. They talk about strategy, but very rarely do we see a leadership get into the actual behaviors and tactics that can make any leader just a little bit better. Yep. No, that's absolutely true. My grandfather used to say, uh, he used to say the quote so often, experience is a dear school, but a fool will learn in no other. And um, and your, your book is for the wise people who are going to be willing to take it and read it and learn from it. I loved what you said in the foreword that the greatest evil is indifference. I, I've often myself thought that's true. You know, you can talk with people even people who don't agree with you, the hardest people in my experience have been the people who really don't care because you just can't do anything with them. As Margaret Thatcher said, I had two great advantages, no money, but great parents. And that sign, the greatest evil is indifference, was on my refrigerator when I was a kid. So our parents 
always taught us, me and my two brothers, is that if words were important enough to be spoken, then action was needed. Yeah, absolutely. In the first chapter, Frank, you do one of the things, uh, one of the tactics that they say is important in getting people's attention. And you go with something counterintuitive. People talk about how, well, character is doing the right thing when nobody is watching. You talk about how leadership is doing the right thing when everybody is watching. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Carol, that's because that's where the real damage occurs. It's people are looking at you. You know, it's almost cliche to say, you know, as a leader, set the example. But we see in our society so many times where leaders fail to lead from out front. A lot of people are moral and good people and they tend to do the right thing when nobody's looking. But where we really are missing in this country is for leaders to do the right thing when everybody is looking because that's when it's hard. It is um, because, you know, most people think, oh, it's not that hard because you have to do the right thing. Everybody's watching. But actually, nowadays, when we're all immersed in cancel culture and, you know, there's a price to be paid for taking an unpopular but right view, you're absolutely right. The essence of leadership is standing up and sometimes saying, I don't agree with what's being done. I don't agree with what's going on. And more often than not, there are other people who feel the same way. They're just afraid to say so. Absolutely. I think one other thing that we both learned in the Charter Oak Leadership Program is leadership can sometimes be being the second person, someone who backs up the first person to say so, right? Every leader needs to – there's a reason in politics why they say touch base. You know, you're supposed to touch your base. But there's a counterside to that. We've never influenced anybody by speaking to people who agree with us. So as a leader, while you always need to maintain your base, go back, but you also need to also expand your base and try to bring people in. Um, Let's talk a little bit about building a command presence and and the importance of building other people up. Um, what, What are your thoughts on that? Because I know it's something you talk about in the book. Okay, so I view command presence something that you clearly have. You're calm, you're confident. I don't know. (laughs) And and competent. So anybody can have command presence. It's something that you have to build throughout your career. And if you're going to be an effective leader, you have to be able to mentor other individuals. One of the things, all of the books that I see on mentoring and what I see in practice as well is everybody wants to mentor the very best. You see somebody that, you know, is that shiny star and you're like, I could just polish this individual and get them to the next level. And good leaders tend to spend a lot of time focusing on that individual that they see so much potential in. However, great leaders will also look to mentor somebody that's in the margins, to find something that motivates somebody that's not motivated to get them to the next level. So, for example, at work, if you have that star, they may not need all that attention. They, they need some attention, but taking your skills and finding somebody on the margins that you can really find out what motivates them and get them to be a better part of the team would be energy well spent. Let's talk about the island of misfits. Um, I that that kind of made me laugh because uh, I've heard people describe. You know, some people talk about like the bar scene in in, in Star Wars, but you know, I often think about uh, sometimes. You know, you're dealing with the island of misfit toys from like Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer or something. But w- what are you talking about about the island of misfits? 
So I worked in the Fairhaven section of New Haven, and when I got promoted, I was assigned to one of the most senior shifts in the city, but they were all crazy. I mean, and the logo of the company is literally the Charlie in the Box from Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer <laughs> for the Island of Misfits. They were all great firefighters, but the banter was crushing. Uh, the practical jokes were out of control. Oh, it was you, firefighters tend to have a, and anybody in public service tends to have a dark sense of humor. Mm-hmm. Um, this well, was the place you wanted I, to work, but the place you also didn't want to make a mistake because they would just destroy you. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and that's tough. I mean, that 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 kind of uh, environment. So so, um, what did you learn from that, Frank? Like, what kind of leadership lessons are are there uh, to be to be taken away in an environment like that? Well, my first night at at uh, Engine Company 10, we had a reported fire on Dover Street. And when we arrived on scene, fire was blowing out of the windows. I was coordinating with the driver. Everything was going great. We had a force entry into the door. We made a strong push under high heat, low visibility, put out the fire. You know, everything was going great. I was kind of had that feeling of this is my first night in the firehouse. I'm going to work great with this crew. Everything is just going perfect. And then out at the command post, the battalion chief said, hey, did anybody locate a dog? And my my heart just sunk because I heard that all the searches were negative from the truck companies and the other companies. And I just thought to myself, if there's one place that that dog could be was in the main fire room. And one Uh of the things that happened is as we were stretching in – The chief radioed out that the fire was enveloping the front of the building and we had to get to the window to kind of put the hose line on the outside of the building to keep the fire in check. And there was a bookcase. And in zero visibility, when I found the bookcase, I ran my hand across the bed and I told Chris Sikowski, I said, just take the bookcase and throw it on the bed. The bed's clear. And Chris is like, He's a larger-than-life firefighter. He could probably fight Bigfoot and come out on top. He threw the bookcase up there. I pushed it up there. We extinguished the fire. Well, it turned out in the end that the bookcase slid off the bed a little and went maybe a 12-inch crack between the bed and the wall and covered the dog. So as we went back and cleared the debris, I found the dog. And I went back out and now – you know, you talked about the island of misfit toys. Here's your first fire with a new crew as the boss. And, you know, I could have covered it up. I could have made an excuse. I could have said there was no way the dog was going to live. There was too much fire in that room. But I said, you know what? If I'm going to earn these guys respect, I'm just going to take it head on. And so I just said, hey, uh, let's review this fire. You know, I missed the dog. What I should have did was had Chris move it to an area that was previously searched, that was stable behind us. Um we let's never put anything else on a bed again. And, you know, in my mind, I'm like, oh, I'm going to have stuffed dogs on the front seat of the fire truck. They're going to be just, you know, crushing banter. I'm going to go eat dinner and there's going to be a stuffed dog underneath the table. I just was figuring that this was going to be the the running joke for for years to come. And what I learned was everybody seemed – I gained credibility by saying, hey, this is what I did wrong. This is what I would do different. I didn't blame anybody. And then I realized that any time we went to a call, at the end of the call, fire or rescue, I'd gather everybody around the back of the piece and I would always start off either by what I did wrong or 
you got to realize as a fire officer, you're making imperfect – you're make, trying to make perfect decisions based off imperfect information. information. Sure. There's no time to look anything up in a book. Everything's moving quick. And I realize that if you review something and you say, hey, this is what I would have done different in hindsight or this was a mistake I went made, it would allow everybody to open up and we'd actually have real quality reviews. And it really ended up being a way of moving that company um, – to strive for excellence. Yeah. You know, it's so interesting. Um, and it's the mark of a secure human being because only a secure person can admit imperfection. I didn't feel secure at the time, Carol. No, of I was course like, not. this is going to be a nightmare. Oh, I mean, but, you know, you were a big enough person to be able to do it. And that gave everyone else confidence that they could admit it without being crushed. You know what I mean? What a great story. I mean, an awful but great story. You know, one of the things that I really enjoyed enjoyed about Command Presence is that it's really three books in one because it's about leadership, but it's also about media presence, and it's also about negotiation. And Frank, you're a good negotiator. Um, I mean, I've seen you start to, to strategize and think about how to go about negotiating. And, you know, in this context, I, I, I want everyone to buy your book. It's a great investment. Um, and as I say, you get three books in one. But let's just talk about it a little bit, um, you know, because negotiation is really what you are, are helping um, Yankee Institute with in terms of your work around the state. As we talk a little bit about negotiation, you know, just quickly tell everyone what uh, Labor and Management Strategies does, and then just maybe give a thought or two about what, you know, some of the insight you've learned about negotiation. Labor Management Strategies' goal is to bring balance back to the bargaining table. What we find is the unions are singularly focused on the collective bargaining agreement, where managers are dealing with budgets, procurement, operations. And so the contract is kind of almost secondary. And sometimes what we find is through the contracts just growing and growing over the years, we find not only the taxpayers having major implications, but we also find good managers being handcuffed that they can't make decisions because their discretion is so limited. Essentially, instead of the contract being about wages, hours, and working conditions, it's really about running the public works, the electric department, the police department, or fire department. So the negotiations program was designed to bring that balance back, to give managers a voice, and also to give taxpayers a seat at the table because all too often they're forgotten in negotiations. And what we find is a lot of really great people, they get on the board of ed, they become a town mm -hmm. council person. They don't come from a union background. And even if they were in a union, they weren't part of the negotiating team. So it's kind of this obscure thing that they overly rely on the attorney that's briefing them without knowing what the right questions are to ask an attorney. So I always view lawyers like a computer. You got to put the right information in to get, <laughs> get the, the right, right information out. out. So. <laughs> Um, yeah, and people can't succeed if, you know, it's not the questions they know to ask. It's the issues and the questions they don't even know they should be thinking or asking about. I mean, almost like the two sides are playing two entirely different games. And you can't win 
uh, as a taxpayer or uh, a, a, an elected official if you don't realize, you know, all the different issues that you're likely to lose on, you know, because you're really not able to to get a grasp of the of the different you know focuses and issues at play. Absolutely. And there's also for elected officials, there's also a little bit of embarrassment too because they get elected, they have that command presence, they're used to talking and now they're in a situation that's completely foreign with them and they're afraid they don't have the answers. It's okay not to have the answers as long as you ask the right questions. And, you know, that's another thing that that is. That's part of of leadership and command presence is just knowing what you don't know and being willing to ask because no one can know everything. Absolutely. You have to be willing to cover your blind spots, but you also have to be self-reflective enough to realize what your blind spots are. (laughs) Yes. Or at least be uh, lucky enough to have a good enough staff that will gently make you aware of them. So it's it's all good. Um, So, you know, if if you had to give – and we don't want to give your book away because there are so many nuggets of wisdom and so many helpful things in here – you know, so let's not give away the store. But would that be your big t- takeaway in negotiation? As uh, you know, one of the takeaways that you would that you want to leave readers with, um, in in terms of negotiation and and strategy as you enter a negotiation, just being aware of your blind spots. Well, you want to be aware of your blind spots. You also, when you see a good move, you want to stop and look for a better one. Um, it's an old chess strategy. Um, all too often, we want to jump in too quick. And the command presence it takes when dealing with the media or dealing with a meeting or a board meeting is completely different than the command presence needed at the bargaining table, for example. So in a negotiation, the person that talks the most is in the position of weakness. You want to be asking questions. And so we always see in the leadership books that says, if you're negotiating a deal, you want to be in your your office with all your trappings and your degree from Harvard and everything. That may be to ink a deal, but that's not 90% of the negotiations. If you want to be a good negotiator, is getting information. So you want to put yourself in a position where the other side is completely comfortable. You want to be in their office. You want to be in a restaurant, a neutral place. You want to ask as many questions as possible so you can garner as much information. Whoever controls the information at the table actually controls the pace of negotiations. This is what I mean, people. This book is a very good deal. Let's head to media. You were very good with media. And that came about, I would think, through a sort of trial by fire during your Supreme Court case, Frank. And can you talk a little bit about what you learned and what that was like. So I was very fortunate, as I said in the beginning, of having great parents. So my father was a circulation manager for the Record Journal. So he wasn't a reporter, but he was always a student of the press. And with our Supreme Court case, we were dealing with the United States Constitution and the 14th Amendment and Title VII. And there's nothing more sensitive to talk about in America than race. And saying one wrong word that can be taken out of context, even though that's not what's in your heart or what you mean, can destroy not only your interview, but your career and your life and your livelihood. And your reputation. And just it's it's a terrible thing. So when the city decided that the price of following Title VII in the Constitution was too high and they violated our rights, we took the issue head on and we knew that 
when we spoke in the media, it had to be clear, concise, and we had to stay on message. So my father kind of came up with a strategy with me, you know, just kind of think tanking it around the table of how we were going to proceed. And something I was proud about is when I went to testify before Congress, I had the opportunity to go before a murder board. And before the murder board starts... And, and let's explain to everybody what a murder board is. A murder board is the same type of interview prep that a Supreme Court justice would go through. It's sort for of a like a dry hearing. run. It's it's sort of like it, 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 you put all the people up. It's it's just like acting it out beforehand. Absolutely. It's it's but it's they're there to destroy you. They look at any opposition research. They want to make sure that you're prepared for any possible answer. And one of the things they do before the murder board is they go through any time you've been quoted in the newspaper, any time you've been on news anything they can find and they try to pivot and they try to change kind of what you were trying to, to say and mean. And they kind of twist your words to make it tough for you so you've had the experience of having people come at you before it's happening in real life. Absolutely. So, so you can succeed in that stressful environment. And I got pulled in the side room and one of the guys said, what are you doing? Because we can't – in years of litigation, we can't find a quote – where it seems that you were misquoted or it seems that you went off the reservation or something the along those nature. The king of message discipline. Exactly. So this book covers those strategies that didn't come for the end of the Supreme Court or the murder board. It came from a circulation manager for the Record Journal and Meriting. Well, you know, it's interesting. And if I may, you know, there are a lot of uh, children out there who are dyslexic or who struggle uh, in school. And if it's all right, I would just, I mean, you're dyslexic, Frank, and yet you've gone on to have a wonderful career and be very successful in everything you've undertaken. And, you know, dyslexia is something that uh, disproportionately tends to be a problem for people who do have high IQs. And I think it's, you know, fantastic and should be something that a lot of children who struggle with it and then they're in school and they think they're not smart or something like that, you know, they should know that in fact it's very bright people and very bright people with it go on to have fantastic careers and write amazing books. Well, I've had great editors and I mean I'm sitting across from an individual that was the editor of the Harvard Law Review. Managing editor, just just the work, the taskmaster. <laughs> But knowing your blind spots, writing, editing is my blind spot. So I really appreciate all your work of and your brilliance on making my work uh, readable. Well, I'm happy to do it. I wish I could take credit for command presence. I can't. Um, but Frank, talk to us about where it's going to be available or where it is available aside from the link that will be on the Yankee Institute website. Uh, it's available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, and fireengineering.com. Uh, Wonderful. Um, Frank Ritchie, uh, Yankee Institute's labor fellow and the author of Command Presence, Increase Your Influence, forward by Chris Bedford, the senior editor at The Federalist. And I would add, it really is three books in one. Learn how to be a leader, learn how to negotiate, learn how to uh, really 
if you ever need to be in the media, learn how to do that really well. But just in general, this is a real primer on how to present yourself in a way that would benefit anyone. I think this would be a fantastic graduation gift, actually, um, because this is something any young person should learn and know before he or she goes off to college, enters the workplace. I wish I had had this a hundred million years ago when I started working, because this is something everyone should have. Mid-career would turn people around. It's it's just a fabulous, fabulous book, Frank. And all of us at Yankee Institute are extremely proud. Command Presence, Frank Ritchie, available on Amazon, uh, Barnes & Noble, and, and anywhere books are sold, and on the Yankee Institute website. Thanks for joining us today, Frank. Thank you. It's been an honor to be on the show, Carol. Uh, we hope you'll join us again. This is Carol Platt-Lebow, president of Yankee Institute. Thanks for being with us on this edition of YCT Matters. I'll show you around this place I call home.